Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And my guest this week is Aaron Sibarium. Aaron Sibarium, who is an associate editor with the Washington Free Beacon, uh, but he's published all over, uh, and you've probably seen his both reporting and his analysis in, in all kinds of places. Um, but I would really characterize his beat, so to speak, um, as, as much more important and interesting than the typical sort of reporting on wokeness or woke beat, um, not because reporting on on uh, increasingly outrageous examples of wokeness um, is not an important uh, sort of reporting line of reporting, um, but because I think Aaron's really digging into the mechanisms of one, how this ideology has been institutionalized and then how it's operationalized within institutions in a way that um, really kind of uh, somehow drains the the ideological character of it while still being very, very political. Um, but it appears to, I should say, it appears to drain some of that character um, and, and becomes just sort of part of the bureaucratic existence um, of these institutions, which I think is, is really interesting. So um, Aaron, welcome to High Noon. It's really great to have you. Thank you for having me. Um, first for folks who haven't read and, and they really should read, um, you, you've done a series of sort of, uh, deep dive reporting, um, on like a, a kind of, um, seemingly different institutions that don't necessarily, they don't have any ties to each other. So here I'm thinking of Yale university, um, and, and then private school K-12, private school accreditation organizations, uh, the American Bar Association, medical associations. For folks who haven't read Aaron's reporting on that, I really highly recommend, again, that you go and, and read that. Uh, um, but let's let's start with the, the, the Yale flap that it seems to be somewhat ongoing. Um, you know, could you just lay out, I think a lot of people have probably heard the, the yeah. basics of the original <laughs> uh, story here, but could you lay out the basics and then we'll, we'll talk about how the institution sure, responded? Sure, sure. Yale is, uh, it, it never gives me a break. I mean, I, I it gave me a solid like month and a half of content, which was wonderful, but it also meant that I had much less time than I normally do because every time I thought the story was over, they just kept digging themselves deeper into a hole and I had to cover it. Um, but the, 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 they began digging um, in, on September 15th when a Native American uh, law student at Yale Law School sent an email uh, inviting his classmates to his quote, trap house. Um, the student was a joint member of the Native American student group and the Federalist Society at Yale. So he sends an email advertising a mixer hosted by the two groups like hey come hang out at our trap house which is how he's been referring to his apartment for months we'll have uh basic bitch american themed snacks like popeye's fried chicken you know and cocktails whatever um and within 12 hours this email elicits nine and counting discrimination and harassment complaints um focused mostly on his use of the term Trap House, uh, which allegedly had racial connotations, and on uh, his advertising fried chicken, which supposedly compounded the racial connotations. Um, so two Yale Law School administrators haul him into a meeting where they explain to him why his email was racist. They um, tell him that part of what made it triggering to people was the mere fact that he was in the Federalist Society. Uh, and then they proceed to pressure him into writing, or they try to pressure him into writing an apology for his original email. Um, and uh, 
they strongly imply that if he does not write an apology and send it out, uh, he could have trouble with the bar exam or face some kind of further punishment. Um, when he hasn't sent out the email by that evening, they email all of his classmates in the in the 2L class to say that this email he sent out was, you know, deeply pejorative and racist, and we condemn it in the strongest possible terms. And essentially what happens is for nearly a month, he is going to these meetings and is left hanging and is worried that disciplinary action is on the table. Finally, shortly before my story broke, they told him, oh, actually, we were never going to punish you. You may have been confused. Don't worry about it at all. Um, But I think any reasonable person in that situation uh, would have gotten the impression that they were being strong-armed and that they could have faced disciplinary sanction. So anyway, you know, the student recorded all these meetings, um, which is why we know about this. Um, And... uh, once it went public, uh, Yale was kind of put on the defensive and a lot of, of I think, even pretty liberal people like Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post, um, Greg Lukianoff at FIRE, others really gave Yale a lot of grief for this. Um, and there have been other scandals this year involving Yale Law School, but this, I think, really was an especially uh, embarrassing one. So that's the that's the long and short of it. Yeah, I think the, again, the the thing that separates this from some of the other um, sort of woke student outrage type situations um, across the country has been, was the reaction of the administration, right? So the administration pretty clearly, first of all, wrote this guy a apology, uh, wrote that he, they wanted him to sign, like the administration mm-hmm. wrote an apology, which is, I mean, really hard to avoid making the Soviet parallel there in terms of signing the confession that is pre-written for you, right? Um, But the administration also directly, like sitting a student down, a law student, you know, Mm. um, I I went to law school, I understand what what this means, right? When the administration sits you down and says, well, there's a character reference part of the bar bar exam, like there's a character Mm -hmm. piece of this, you really don't want to, uh, you know, jeopardize your your actual career in the future, would you? I mean, that those are really serious threats coming directly from the administration. And then what's further interesting you know, I, I guess I'd like to get your take on this because there was a little bit of back and forth between other people following this story um, as to the response of the dean. Um, and you just reported just a few days ago, I think, that um, she absolutely signed off on this kind of condem- mm-hmm. condemnation of this student, but then ended up walking it back and sending a, if not apologetic email, an email with a very different tone where she reaffirmed that, you know, the Federalist Society, something so basic as the Federalist Society is welcome on, uh, in Yale Law School on campus, right? Um, You know, what, what is the role of the dean here? And not just like her personally, but how she's navigated as somebody representing the institution of the university, how she navigated this? Well, we can't be totally sure of her role because the report that contains the details on it uh, has not been made public. And we only know about it through kind of secondhand reports of people who have had to go to the deputy dean's office to have the report read out loud to them. Um, I mean, they clearly there's stuff in here that they don't want people to to know or have easy access to. Um, But 
it has essentially been confirmed that she signed off on the email condemning Trent Colbert, the student. Um, and, you know, at, right, she's the dean of the law school. To sanction this email is for the law school to take the institutional position that the term trap house, you know, used in this way is pejorative and racist. And furthermore, you know, something that I didn't mention earlier, but I think it's actually quite important is that the, the initial meeting was was hosted under the auspices of the discrimination and harassment coordinators at the university. And they were the ones who sent out this email with the go ahead from Dean Gherkin. So what the law school essentially said was not just that we object to this speech, but this speech may have been discrimination, harassment, and thus this speech may have been illegal under the Civil Rights Act. Um, you know, that is a pretty radical position for a law school to take, and especially a law school that is headed by a, a dean who as recently as 2017 was writing, oh, you know, there are all these ugly incidents where speakers get shouted down at, on campus, like, for example, at Middlebury with Charles Murray. But it's great that law schools don't have that because we in law schools believe in free speech, you know, and it's so great. And then, you know, four years later, um, kind of as the, the rot just worked its way up from undergrads, uh, suddenly she is signing off on the idea, not just that the term trap house is racist because like a few black students you know ridiculously claimed it was but is is suggesting that it might actually be like illegal to to, to send an email saying this um you know in or at least sort of subject to civil liability that's really insane and i mean the 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 cravenness right um the the, the fact that she could go switch so far from 2017 to now I mean, I think goes to show how rapidly the sort of institutionalization of wokeness has occurred in just the past few years. I mean, it's always been there, but it did not command quite the same power, I think, prior to at Yale Law School, probably 2018, and the, certainly not prior to 2020. Yeah, I mean, you've really looked at that sort of institutional angle um, and how it interacts with the pre-existing wokeness that you're I hate the word wokeness just because I think it's imprecise, not because I think it's right. like uh, problematic or whatever. I just mm -hmm. think it's imprecise, but I really can't come up with a better term. So I'm going to keep using it. Um, you know, you've, you've looked at how, um, for example, in K-12 schools and private schools, um, the accreditation and best practices of um, an umbrella organization that accredits a lot of, uh, of a certain type of private school, um, you know, includes this this diversity, equity, um, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, plank in its accreditation, and how that interacts with like there are schools that definitely want to be, they want to go woke anyway, yeah. and this provides a cover for it. But you also wrote about how it can be kind of homogenizing, like. I think the the thing I'm touching on is so many of us feel like um, this ideology has really gotten into everything, 
Like there's no way to escape it. Every sort of um, unrelated private institution seems to have made contact with it in some way and grabbed a hold of it. I mean, can you talk a little bit about your reporting on the accreditation um, yeah. organizations and then how that how that kind of soft power of the accreditation industry accelerates the institutionalization of the ideology? Sure. Um, so let me start actually with law school accreditation because it's a good it's a good example. Um, the American Bar Association accredits every uh, law school in the United States. It has, or almost every law school. Um, it has not formally done this yet, but it is in the process of finalizing new accreditation standards that would uh, basically require all law schools to teach some sort of class on racism and racial bias in the law um, and teach students that they have a professional obligation to remedy bias in the legal system, which of course is basically code for, you know, teaching a left-wing activist critical race theory class. Um, and that requirement, it hasn't even been adopted but it seems to already be influencing schools because a lot of law schools, including Cardoza Law School, UC Irvine, um, Boston College Law School, and now this has not been reported yet, but um, it will be reported, um, Georgetown Law School even, have all agreed to do this, and there are, I'm sure, others, um, to kind of, in, in partly in anticipation of this accreditation requirement coming down, they're they've announced that they're going to make all 1L students um, take some kind of basically critical race theory class, um, which goes to show that these, these standards do have power. Um, and you see it also with private secondary schools, where one of the big kind of accreditation bodies, the National Association for Independent Schools, um, as you say, it, it, lays out best practices that it wants schools to adopt. And if schools don't adopt them, they might get in trouble with their accreditors and thus lose access to some of the resources their accreditors provide, including say like market data that they kind of need um, to compete with other schools. Uh, and, you know, it's framed as best practices. Like it's totally neutral, you know, like best practices. Well, you know, you should always maybe give parents, you know, clear and transparent you know, information in the enrollment contract or something, except the best practices now also include, and you need to incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion into all aspects of the curriculum, um, which of course means that the schools will hire lots of DEI consultants and the DEI consultants will tell the school that they're racist and tell the kids that their school is racist. So there will be a survey that the school does to gauge uh, how racist it is and under the influence of the DEI consultants, of course, the responses will be or will be spun as the school is racist. So on the accreditation report, uh, you'll hear the, the, the accreditation report will be like, oh, whoa, you know, kids think the school is racist or someone didn't think that the school was maximally inclusive. Ah, well, then our advice to the school is to be even more inclusive. And how do you do that? Well, you hire more inclusion officers who perpetuate the exact same memes. And so it's a self-perpetuating cycle that, uh, it effectively just functions as a job program for DEI consultants um, who are themselves often very closely aligned with the accreditation agencies. Um, so yeah, they're, they're on one, one side of this is just, it, 
exerts a centralized pressure on schools to adopt this stuff, which is part of why you see it happening everywhere. And on the other side of it, there's also an economic pressure, you know, where, where the diversity consultants like have an incentive in kind of capturing this accreditation bureaucracy and using it to enrich themselves. Um, so the, those are sort of the two things that are happening simultaneously. So in this case, you're, you're not only talking about the institution, you're talking about almost a growing class of people whose primary credential is being able to speak this language, right? Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you think that that intertwines with, I mean, I sound like a Marxist here, but like class issues, right? Because it, it strikes me that you're creating even even the language, even laying aside the ideology, like saying that everybody, let's say for a moment, which I think would be actually much better than the situation we have, but let's say that that nobody actually believes this stuff. It's too ridiculous to be be believed. Right. Um, but but there's a sort of self-interest in credentialing yourself and being able to speak this language so that you can get one of these DEI positions that usually pay six figures, like they're they're respectable, uh, you know, upper middle class mm -hmm. positions. Um you know, how how does that feed into inequality um, in terms of, of class structure in the United States? Well, yeah, so so a couple things. Um, it can certainly make uh, people's employment more precarious because it's just much it, it's much easier to lose your job when you create when you simultaneously have a class of people whose job it is to find racism in every little thing, and you have a kind of sprawling system that imposes liability on institutions for allowing any kind of racism, um, this sort of combination of civil rights law with increasingly radical DEI officers is, I think, going to make um, employment more precarious for a lot of people, in part because you know, I, I, this is not a unique observation, but there is a kind of court ritual like dynamic to wokeness where it's difficult to keep track of all the little changing etiquette rules that are just invented on the fly. And indeed, they kind of have to be invented on the fly in order for there to be any plausible claim that, you know, racial etiquette, etiquette rules aren't being met, and thus for there to be, you know, racism for the bureaucrats to expunge. I, you know, there. I, I do want to maybe push back against not necessarily your framing, but the framing that I think a lot of people come at this with, which is that ah, wokeness is really, you know, the ruling class deciding to keep the working class down with culture war stuff. And I think it can have that effect, but I don't really think that that's the A, the reason for it primarily, and B, you know, I... I I don't think that's really actually a good genealogy of how it came about. Um, I'd say a better genealogy was was offered by my friend Charles Lehman in the uh, in City Journal, and basically it's that you know look when the Civil Rights Act got passed in '64, it did not define discrimination very clearly at all, and so there was this huge scramble among corporations to figure out shit. You know we have to comply, we can't discriminate, but what does that even mean? Um, and so they kind of start hiring all these personnel managers, which then morph into, you know, modern day DEI offices. Um, and the problems that once those things get entrenched, 
in order to comply with civil rights law, they suddenly develop their own set of incentives, right? Because the bureaucrats need to there to be some kind of racism, you know, to root out and they need to show that they're doing something. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, and so once it gets kind of institutionalized as a form of compliance, it takes on its own logic that goes well beyond compliance. And you see universities and, and other institutions, um, you know, restricting all sorts of speech that probably most courts even today would not considered to be a violation of any civil rights law, but that they worry, well, if there's a complaint, we're going to have to litigate it and there'll be bad press and just, you know, there, there's, there's now simultaneously this incentive for the people who companies have hired to find racism and everything and an incentive for the companies to try to avoid any accusation of racism. And those two things together, right, create kind of a, a, a constant churn of censorship. And so, you know, I don't mean to suggest that it's all about the law. Um, I also don't mean to suggest that there's any easy legal solution. I think because this stuff is now entrenched, it, you know, if you just, not that we would do this, but like if you totally tore up all civil rights laws tomorrow, I don't actually think it would do very much. Um, but I, but I do think it's important to recognize that this was not just like greedy, rapacious capitalists scheming up ways of oppressing the the working class it was actually in part the kind of unintended consequence of government interference in the economy which to be clear i think was in many ways called for um to, in some form and you know just because a policy has bad unintended consequences doesn't necessarily mean the policy was all things considered bad but you know if you're not willing to talk about the government's role in setting some of this stuff in motion, I, I, I think you're just not going to get very far because when you, the more you dig into the literature on this, the more clear it becomes that some version of the Chris Caldwell genealogy is actually basically right. Like he may not have spelled it out as clearly as he could have in the book, but like if you go and just read enough of the civil rights cases and look at the history of HR compliance departments, it's like pretty clear that just none of this really would have happened in the same way without um, the without 64 and then without all the kind of early Supreme Court cases that built on it. So I guess um, my question both to that and to, to Chris Caldwell's line of thinking generally has always been an objection to the inevitability of it, because sure. I, I think what you have are two two kind of separate strains running and then colliding in the 1960s, right? One is America's very real, uh, I don't even want to say very real like problem or struggle with race. I want to say something much more specific, which yeah. is how black Americans have been treated um, in the American system. Because I, I don't even like to broaden it to race because I think, for example, right. the various immigration stories, it's, it's quite different. Um, but there is something that has always, you know, um, th this mm -hmm. has always been the great Achilles heel of the American system. Um, and, and so on the one hand, there is that track running all the way, um, you know, I would say certainly from the founding, I'm sure the, uh, the Nicole Hannah Jones will say yeah. since right. 1619, yeah. right. Um, but, but with regard to the American system, something that certainly, um, has vexed us since the founding, right. Um, and then on the other, this collision with 
I think the the strain of American thought that starts in the progressive era, right? Which is right. when America really does bureaucratize and tech and, and becomes much more of a technocracy, a modern technocracy um, than, than it had been in the past. Of course, there, there have always been executive departments, right? Um, famously, Jefferson was mm-hmm. like writing complaints about Hamilton's bloated treasury department of like 26 people, right? So <laughs> like yeah. it, it, there, there's always, always some amount of bureaucracy in implementation uh, but I think in the progressive era, you really get this idea of the professionalized bureaucracy totally yeah. separated from the democratic process by right, right? That that, that these folks right. really ought to be, um, that there was such a, a thing as a political administration of government. Um, yeah. And I, I think those two things kind of collided in the, in the 1960s, yes. right? Um, yes. And, and so... The way that Caldwell tells that story, I think, is sort of overemphasizing the racial aspect of the story and under it. Like, I almost feel this this could have this kind of proliferation could have happened on some other issue. But because the issue, particularly right. with regard to race and pr- even more specifically with regard to the status of black Americans, um, I don't know. There is something uh, sort of uh, I wonder sometimes if it isn't uh, a little bit more. There's something of an arc of justice about this, right? If, if America really is brought down, not in the way that the the left thinks it is because it's an evil society, but because uh, this this failure, this great failure of America to extend the the promises of America to yeah. a large category of its own citizens ends up bringing it down in this convoluted way. It, it yeah. A certain amount of po- no, poetry to it. I, I, I actually, I think that's a very good point. Um it's something I've thought of and you, and you put it very well. Um, I, I, like this critique, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm happy to sort of accept your, your, your characterization of it as these two forces colliding and say, you know, it wasn't just the race thing. It was this professionalization thing that kind of interacted with the race thing. I, I think that's, that's broadly right. Um, I also would say, you know, people, people like Caldwell and others look, including me who are sort of sympathetic to this genealogy, need to realize though that I it it does not actually have to imply it doesn't just imply a critique of the civil rights movement um it implies a critique of all that led up to it right because it was clear that we were going to do something and we kind of had to do something um and you know like it may be that this sort of quote unquote second constitution that Caldwell talks about was really destructive, but you know, there would not really have been such a push for it if we had not had uh, over a hundred years of slavery and, and, you know, then, you know, another nearly hundred years of Jim Crow. Right. Um, So yeah, I like, I, I think, it would be poetic justice in a sense, maybe not justice. I don't want it to it happen. Be, yeah, I don't want to use the word. Know, I don't want it to happen, but it would be poetic. Happen. It would be poetic. And and I think that it also, you know, you need to like, fundamentally, there does need to be an answer to what do we do about this? Because if the answer is just, well, we tried something and it was really bad. If only we hadn't done that thing. I mean, okay, but like, the, the the status quo ante was not great either. And indeed, as much as I, you know, spend my life complaining about wokeness, like, you know, if you put a gun to my head and are like, well, I mean, would, 
what do you think is like a more just society like America 2021 or, you know, Jim Crow America? I'd be like, yeah, you know, probably America 2021. And I think there's this issue where conservatives sometimes feel like if they concede that they're giving up the game because they're conceding the left's narrative of progress. The problem is that if you don't concede that, you are effectively saying that like things are as bad or worse like overall than they were under a regime of, you know, de facto and and even de jure oppression and segregation. And I even the really hard, hard edged kind of tack writers, you know, <laughs> like like even they like like will not say that quite so bluntly out loud. And there's a reason they don't. And and I think ultimately it's it's somewhat intellectually dishonest to not grapple with the question of, well, if the Civil Rights Act was part of the problem, what else were we supposed to do? Because, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I don't I don't I don't think that just accept white supremacist racial hierarchy is a good answer here. Um, and maybe now, I mean, look, the, the, the maybe the, the best answer to be as charitable as possible to kind of this other side is to say, well, maybe this stuff would have kind of resolved on its own to some extent without civil rights, like, probably to in some contexts, some of it, but like overall, yeah, like it, it's not that plausible. I mean, I mean, this I, stuff I was very entrenched. It's... Like it's, it's hard to imagine people just like organically getting less racist and deciding, Oh, actually like, like, like would we have gotten to this point without the civil rights act? Eh, it's like, Probably not. I, I don't really think so. It's hard to tell a counterfactual where that would happen. I, I agree. I, I don't think we would have gotten to the same point. And actually, I think maybe this is a, a sort of productive analogy to start looking for something that might be a solution. Because if you if you take out for a moment the this particular racial history, um, the problem that you know, blacks in the South under Jim Crow were confronting was a kind of, even if you had gotten rid of the de jure laws, which was the sort of soft version of a civil rights act, right? Um, right. And it was pretty clear that that wasn't going to be enough because there was a certain amount of cultural coordination, um, cultural collusion, whatever you want to call it. There yeah. was a monoculture that would have excluded you know, black customers from not just a business, but all businesses in a given area, not just one hotel, but all the hotels, you know, along an entire highway. That was the the need for the green book, right? Um, mm. And in in that sense, I almost wonder if if the, uh, this, I've, I've been wondering more and more recently, if the solution is like not to push through and continue to create these categories under the civil rights law, which I never would have said would be would be a good solution, like even a couple years ago. Um, but it strikes me that the some of the problems that the right has now with so-called woke capitalism is of a similar type, where you don't have de jure, mm -hmm. you know, sort of um, discrimination. You don't. What you have is cultural coordination between all of the companies in a given sector and and practically yeah. all the sectors, right? Um, where you have essentially wokeness as an as the the court ideology of all of these different mm -hmm. industries all of these different institutions um at, to the point where your quote-unquote legal rights matter very little um in terms of the actual practical experience of navigating right. the landscape now and i wonder i mean how do you what do you think about 
for example, just like some of the way that, for example, yeah. talks about the CRT law, right? Like aggressively sue under the Civil Rights Act. Um, yeah. To the extent I, that wokeness violates it and then maybe even create categories to try to protect other parts of uh, try to insulate ourselves in the same right. way. I, I think I think the first part is sort of suing under it could work. Um especially given that, you know, there's probably more judges now who are sympathetic to that. So, you know, I think I think that could mitigate some of the worst excesses. Um I creating new categories, um you know what worries me about this is that it just won't really a, I mean, there's a worry about just sort of over, over bureaucratizing society. Just the more categories you create, the more possible grievances there are, and that can have its own unintended consequences. Um, so I, I worry a bit about trying to fight fire in with fire in that way. But the other thing I would say too, is that like in practice, um, what I think will happen precisely because, as you said, this stuff has been drained of its overtly ideological content. It's just seen as best practices and not a political thing. People, I think what would end up happening is you'd say, oh, well, yeah, you can be like a conservative. That's fine. That's protected under the Civil Rights Act, but just not, you know, like a racist conservative. And what would a racist conservative be? Well, that would be, you know, like being against affirmative action or something like, like that's the kind of worry I have where, where it may in theory, sure, you know, maybe political ideology should be a protected class, but because you have all these other protected classes, what I think will end up happening is you'll just kind of have bureaucrats say, well, there's the legitimate form of the political ideology and the illegitimate form and the illegitimate form will, you know, be basically anything like, that's not just sort of milk toast, like, you know, center right free market type libertarianism. Like, 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 you know, I, I it's nothing against milk toast center right free market libertarians. Um, you know, some of my best friends are, you know, center right milk toast free market libertarians, but, uh, you know, some of my best friends are also like Catholic monarchists. And, you know, I don't think that that's going to be, covered under this new dispensation um i mean if it could be that might be a good solution but it's like it's a bit like the old joke where you know the way economists solve problems is like like opens a can on a desert island is assume the can is open it's like yeah like you know we could solve this problem by assuming that like civil rights laws would apply to political ideologies in a sane and consistent way but like probably they won't so that's kind of my worry about it if if we were applying these ideologies in a sane and consistent way we probably wouldn't uh be in the position that we we're in, in right place. exactly right because because of course like like you know it's pretty obvious to me that like a lot of what robin d'angelo does is just essentially straight up like anti-white racism but you know that's not the way that like the biden doj probably sees it um <laughs> so that's kind of the issue um, you know, if, if we think about this as a problem of kind of technocratic institutions rather than mm -hmm. like, and I think it's both to be clear, I think it is the, the place we're at is very much a consequence of the actual ideology and not some abstract, as you say, like rapacious capitalists mm -hmm. who are kind of 
uh, mouthing platitudes in order to to screw the working class. I mean, I think there are elements of that happening, but I mm -hmm. think there are a lot of true believers and actually this ideology is very powerful. Um, but, but for a moment speaking about it in a fully institutional way rather than like the way I would combat ideas, right, directly. Because mm -hmm. I, I haven't found that to be particularly productive. It is, I, I think McWhorter is right when he says this is essentially a religion or at least a bad religion. Mm. Um, and, and there's very little way to argue with people, especially when it is institutionalized. So as you say, it just doesn't get yeah. recognized as something you can even question, right? Because it's, it's on the bureaucratic form. You have to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you yeah. know, what do you mean you, you're de debating that these are maybe not good things to, you know, like um, it, it, it doesn't seem to be something that we can right. kind of traditionally debate in the marketplace of ideas very effectively. Um, but if we think about it as a institutional problem, I mean, it seems to me that the alternatives, um, laying aside Catholic monarchy for a moment, mm -hmm. um, the, the alternatives to this kind of institutionalization um, are two concepts that the right has a very, um, depending on what part of the right you're on, right, uh, has a very uh, not divorced but strained relationship mm -hmm. with, and that's meritocracy and democracy, yeah. right? I mean, you can fight this in one of two ways. You can essentially say, okay, the people are much less woke than the yeah. elite and the institutions. Therefore, we need a heavy dose of democracy uh, to, to correct for the over-wokeness of the elites. Mm. Or, or two, you know, we need to make sure that the people who are in these institutions are selected only on meritocratic criteria um, and thereby exclude because of the tendency of, of ideology to also make incompetence, right? When you make, right. when you're judging people and that's, that's, I mean, that's been the story of the U S for the last, I think the last couple of years has really been full on display, right? How incompetent these institutions become yeah. when they're selecting only on ideology. Yeah, no. And, and, and look, I mean, I, 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 I think you're right that those are two concepts that the right has a strained relationship with now. And that is a problem. Um, when it comes to meritocracy, what I would say is that different institutions are more or less uh, kind of befitting of meritocratic selection criteria. I, I don't really mind if, um, you know, politicians do not all maybe go to the same schools that, you know, like, I don't, we don't have to have like our entire political class be educated at the Ivy League. We don't need, there's a lot of places where the, the meritocracy doesn't actually seem to have produced great results. In the medical system, though, for example, I, just intuitively, like, maybe there isn't, a strong correlation between IQ and how good your doctor is, but I kind of find that hard to believe. And you really don't want an incompetent person doing your surgery. I mean, there are certain institutions where meritocratic principles are just more appropriate than others. Um, and I think that's something that often a lot of the right-wing critiques from, say, Helen Andrews or Ross Douthat, I wouldn't say that they deny this, but they don't really make this distinction. And I think it's an important distinction that, like, when you have a kind of just broad ruling class and the broad ruling class is, is, is all sort of, you know, it's, it's effectively kind of a IQ based hereditarian elite that doesn't recognize its hereditarian character. Um, that's a big problem, but 
I, I don't think it's such a big problem if just like doctors are the people who get the highest MCAT scores, you know, and I, I do think it, it, it should be possible in theory to, to, um, make certain institutions less meritocratic while making others more. Um, I suppose I like, I, I, I want to make that distinction because I think for all its faults, I'm actually, I like a lot of things about meritocracy and I like a lot of things about democracy too, but I actually think that the rights fraught relationship with democracy is actually a pretty valuable thing to have. Um, there's always been a real danger of the tyranny of the majority. And I think one of the best aspects of conservative thought is that it recognizes that ter that danger and the, that kind of inherent potential for tyranny. Um, it seems to me that the Trump era made the right somewhat, uh, a bit too comfortable with democracy insofar as it kind of made them want to come up with all these sort of po populisty justifications for Trump and whatever. And, uh, you know, there's things Trump did that I liked and things he did. I didn't like, I'm not a big fan of him, but you know, whatever. But, but my, my, my point is that, uh, you know, there are a lot of very good reasons to be skeptical of the excesses of democracy. Um, so while I support maybe making school board elections more democratic by like having them on cycle and giving more parents more say in what their kids learn in schools, there's a lot of other contexts where I'm not sure that what we really need is more democracy, right? Like I actually, you know, looking at the primary process, for example, you know, I don't, I don't think it's obvious that making, you know, letting kind of both parties activists have so much of a say in who gets nominated um, I don't think that that's been great um, on either side in a lot of ways. N and not just because I want some kind of like old stuffy establishment consensus, but because the actual people who tend to be empowered by the vocal activists are often, they're often people who have some problems. Um, and the vocal activists are often kind of unhinged, much more so than uh, the vast majority of voters on either side, right? Like I think Trump's rabid base and, you know, the kind of woke rabid base of the democratic party, neither of these is particularly representative of like a lot of your just average voters in the United States on either side. Um, so that's a long winded answer, but just, I would say I'm, I'm a little more sympathetic to the kind of meritocracy pushback to wokeness than the democracy pushback, just because I think, the democracy stuff, there are so many things that large majorities want or say, or you can get them to say that are terrible and stupid that I'm like, ah, you know, this is, we don't want to just go full in on democracy, right? Like it's important that we have democratic accountability. It's also important that we have some safeguards on the democratic accountability. Um, so I guess I'm probably maybe, maybe the opposite or maybe I'm much more comfortable um, it, and it's not that I, I disregard, uh, the rights, traditional warnings about the tyranny of the majority or, uh, about democracy. It's just that I think our democracy has been curtailed so aggressively by, on the one hand, a, a technocratic administrative state. And on, on the other hand, the courts mm -hmm. that at this moment in time, I find myself very comfortable with a hearty dose of democracy, whereas, 
in, I don't think that's always the answer, but it seems to me that our moment has too little democracy and not too much. But I wanted to ask you actually, do you- Why could I say one quick- Sure. I was just gonna say, yeah. So I actually, I think I, I think in many ways you're right that our moment does not have enough democracy. Um, But it, even if it doesn't have enough democracy and we want to interject more of it, the question is where does it not have enough democracy? And, you know, and the other thing I would say is that as much as like public health is a good example where I think the public health establishment is ridiculously incompetent and terrible. Um, But the solution there is really not that we make public health more democratic, I think. It's that we like get just better public health technocrats. You know, there's certain decisions that just shouldn't be up to them maybe, um, certain trade-offs, right, that are just inherently value-laden, and, and I don't think that Fauci or whatever, anyone in that situation is really prepared to, to adjudicate. But, uh, you know, like, you do actually need some, like, government scientists who can read epidemiological models and make predictions, you know, and, uh, like, that's just not something you can have democratically, Right. And, and so, like, yes, I want the public health experts to be better, but I also do want them to be experts and, you know, fully expect that a good public health establishment would have an IQ, like, if it were actually a good public health establishment, which ours isn't. But if it were good, I suspect it would have an average IQ that was, you know, not particularly representative of, like, the country's average IQ. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the role of expertise and and democratic accountability, which I think is an important balance that we've lost. I think that's the problem. I mean, I think both are important. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that, you know, every scientific or technical question should be left to a a straight up, you know, plebiscite or. (laughs) Right, right. No, yeah, yeah, Um, sure. But, you know, is the is the real problem here that we've lost then a left, right? If if, um, I, I consider myself on the right and uh, for most things, I think you're a little bit, you're, you're sort of right of center, but you're definitely like ideologically heterodox on certain things. Um, I don't think you would characterize yourself, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't think you would characterize yourself as like sort of firmly in any camp of the right. Not really, no. Um, you know, is, is but but we're both sort of right of center at this this sure. juncture. So it's the problem that we we have an absence of a real left Right? Isn't it kind of their job? Maybe it's our job to be skeptical of of um, you know democracy <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and meritocracy, and and their job to be sort of on the vanguard of of uh, the people's movement, and um, and that there is actually perhaps a healthy balance uh, between yeah. these things in sort of a Jordan Peterson esque way. No, I, I think that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I basically agree with that. The the if if the left were actually leftist it would uh we would be in a better place um and look i mean this is this is sort of cliche but everyone everyone says ah critical race theory is marxist but if you actually look at like the true marxist professors they don't like this stuff um because they think it all distracts from the class struggle and you know what like those those true marxists are often much more interesting and fun to talk to um, and a lot less easily offended and insane than the kind of woke Elizabeth Warren neolibs who run our institutions. Um, so yeah, I, like I, I don't want America to actually be, you know, a debate between 
Marxist professors and like reactionaries. But, you know, if there were maybe a little more Marxism on the left and a little less wokeness, that would probably be healthier for the country, given where we are right now. Yeah, you're actually anticipating something I really wanted to ask you, which is, do you think that socialism, uh, you know, sort of what Marcuse, I think, called vulgar socialism, right? like our vulgar, some um, vulgar socialism or vo- uh, vulgar communism, I can't remember. But uh, basically, what he was referencing, though, was was traditional Marxist economic analysis and class anal- analysis, right? Um, you know, do you think that that has completely peaked and receded in the Democratic Party? Because I'm trying to think back to 2016. Obviously, 2016 was not just the year of Trump. It was the year of Bernie mm-hmm. on the left. Um, and yes, Bernie, even in 2016, had come considerably, had become considerably more woke on certain questions. Obviously, he flipped his traditional position on immigration um, and a couple other things. Uh, but I would say he's still the heart of his appeal was still very economically based, um, very much close to what I would call more traditional socialism, mm-hmm. right? Um, what we'd be familiar with as socialist analysis and socialist solutions, you know, presenting. And at that time, you know, being from a family from a, a communist country, um, you know, I was like, oh, wow, that's really scary. Like the the Democratic Party is really embracing open socialism yeah. um, of the old type. Uh, but now it seems to me that the new vanguard of <laughs> vanguard anyway, um, <laughs> the new vanguard of the left, um, even those who call themselves democratic socialists, like I'm thinking here of AOC is the most yeah. prototypical example. I almost wonder how long they can keep blending the the Marxist class analysis with the wokeism and actually have any kind of, cause they, they, they do, as, as you point out with these old Marxist professors, right? Like they do actually come into fundamental conflict and they have different solutions to advance, um, you well, know, like whether free, you think the primary yeah. problem. Yeah. Like ahead. the free college for all stuff or the, the salt cap. There, there's a lot of things that obviously Democrats support because it, it helps college educated people, um, because that's their base. Right. Um, and that is somewhat, in in conflict with the with the marxist class struggle you know i mean look like i i think in practice the the social when people say they're democratic socialists what they really just seem to mean is they want the united states to be more like europe and i don't think europe is i mean scandinavia like these these are not socialist countries in the sense that venezuela say a socialist country um i don't think that necessarily means that that's a good direction i just think realistically the the it seems to me that the the bigger question is do we try probably somewhat incompetently to make our very big and diverse society have about the economic system form of capitalism that scandinavian social democracy has um or do we not do that and there, it may well be that the, the best answer is no, we shouldn't try to do that. I just, you know, I don't think that the question here is, do we become, I don't think on, at, at least I don't think the economic stuff is going to turn us into Venezuela. I mean, I think it could hurt people's standards of living and give us some of the same economic problems that Europe has, um, while also potentially 
you know, solving some of the problems America has. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't really, there is a lot of, a, there are authoritarian, totalitarian threats I worry about. Um, us turning into the actual, like, Soviet Union is not really one of them. Um, again, it's not to say that the socialist stuff is good, but I just think in practice what these people mean is, you know, within the realm of, like, Western liberal democracies, even if it's maybe not ideal. I mean, I also just don't see, and this is notoriously difficult to predict, so I I fully acknowledge that this could be totally off, right? But it seems to me that the way the coalitions are breaking apart and rearranging Mm -hmm. make it so unlikely that kind of Bernie-esque socialism Mm -hmm. um, to to sort of win out in either party. And as long as we still have a two-party system in the United States... Because I think, frankly, a lot of the the people who found Bernie's message really appealing are now migrating into the Republican Party where, you know, they might pull, and, and some of this might be positive, they might pull the center of the Republican Party more in favor of, say, you know, tax credits for families or, or um, you know, less limited government um, economic policies. But it's really difficult to imagine the current apparatus of the Republican party becoming socialist. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No. Yeah. And, and so they'll become more of an influence on the party than like its leadership. And then on, on the flip side, as you say, it really seems like the, the core constituency of the democratic party is essentially like a woke technocrats, right. People with college degrees. And so I, I just don't even see if, if I were like a Marxist socialist, like, I, I'm not yeah. sure I'd be very optimistic about the path forward in either one of the two parties. Well, and in America, that kind of that's kind of it for you, right? You know, there have been a lot of yeah. attempts to break the two party system, and they haven't really been successful. Well, well, that's that's maybe a reason for optimism, though, right? That like, uh, so you know, a, a truly damaging economic ideology yeah. that would re- entail sort of this full scale transformation of society. Th- there's not really an outlet for it, as you say, because the incentives just don't really line up between the two parties um so you know that's look like like i think wokeism can make our economy less efficient and poorer and also just make our culture more deranged and all sorts of things but you know it probably on its own is not really gonna steward in like massive bread lines and you know that's that's good right like count your blessings doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight wokeness but Good to keep some perspective that that it alone is unlikely to uh, turn us into, you know, the 1950s Russia or whatever. I I, I think what I fear more in terms of the, the concrete, um, aside from, again, that I do think that we are headed to a system where we don't need the gulags, right? Yeah, um, right. We're like, we're like 60s USSR in that regard of like repression of thought and speech. I think we are not all that far off from like 60s or 70s USSR where, you know, there are gulags, but they're not that heavily in use. Uh, you know, the primary way that your people's thought and speech and debate is controlled is by the threat of social ostracization and losing your job um, and not being able to like join in society or feed your family like uh, because you've been labeled an enemy of the party. Right. Uh and I don't think we are that far off. I mean, there, we are still 
considerably different. Don't get me wrong, but I, I don't think so. I, I'm definitely worried about it from that angle. But yeah, you're right. I mean, breadlines probably not in our immediate future. But I mean, the what I what I worry about with that with the ideological component is just the the incompetence that comes with it. Is could be. Yeah. I don't think slow decline is really in the cards for us as an option. Like, I don't think Scandinavian decline is in, it seems to me like it's going to be yeah. way more spectacularly incompetent and planes are going to start falling out of the sky. Right. Because if Delta really starts to hire on, you know, without regard to merit and starts to hire on a quota system, yeah. like stuff is going to start. The optimistic, the optimistic scenario is that they'll, market pressures will kind of prevent them from doing the craziest stuff and they'll just do a lot of ideological policing internally and add more and create more of these like kind of diversity sign cures to artificially inflate diversity but the actual maybe people who are engineering the planes will still be mostly hired on the basis of competence that's the optimistic scenario um you know, you're right that that may not come to pass. And uh, if it doesn't, uh, yeah, planes falling out of the sky is going to be a problem. I, I I suspect that in practice, what will happen is areas of life where failure is very visible, like say crime, where it's very, it's very tangible. You see it every day that's where there will be just more organic pushback that prevents this stuff from going as insane. And so to the extent it survives, it'll be kind of co-opted and be more cosmetic maybe. Um, in areas where, like say the medical system, there are real costs to the to doing away with meritocracy, but the costs aren't always very visible. That's where I think you could see this stuff go pretty far. Um, and really I've heard from people that, you know, doctors are just not as competent these days as they used to be. Um, and everyone knows this, but doesn't say it, uh, because standards have been dumbed down and they've been dumbed down largely for frankly, affirmative action reasons. Um, you know, it may be that there's some self-correction there eventually, but I think it's going to have to get pretty bad for those sorts of subtle and indirect costs to really be acutely felt um and by that point you know yeah there maybe planes don't start falling out of the sky but there probably are going to be a lot of people who who are dead or in worse health than they would have otherwise been if uh, we hadn't gone down this path so you know yeah i'm not maybe worried about like total total collapse but i agree with you that there is the potential for this to get quite bad well, on that on that optimistic note, yeah. um, I think we should probably wrap things up. I know you have things to do, um, but Aaron Sabarian, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. You, where can people find all of this reporting, great reporting that you're doing? Uh, go to the Free Beacons website, or um, I'm on Twitter, uh, just at Aaron Sabarian, all lowercase. Um, yeah. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.